Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today we've got a conversation with Kevin from Valley Heart. I am stoked on this record and the freshness that it brings and the freshness that's involved with both live and recorded music these days and all the new emerging mediums in the music scene in 2022. I think Valley Heart is on the right track. And their new album, Heal My Head, it's out now, so you can go stream it anywhere. Um, And also, make sure to go to LabeledUniverse.com. We just announced a new show in Dallas. So go get tickets now to see Norma Jean, O'Sleeper, Aaron Gillespie, Emery, Salt Creek. That's going to be a blast. And here's me and Kevin from Valley Heart. So this is already, I guess, one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Seeing how as I'm driving down the road while doing it with the SM58. Yeah, I want to remember. Yeah, It's nice to meet you, Kevin. Um, nice to meet you too, man. The new record is so good. I love it. How did it get here? How did we get here to, you know, I'm meeting you. You have a great record that to me is just nailed it. And people are responding to it. How did, I mean, I don't know you. I don't have a history with you at all, but yeah. I, I'm sure we have a future of knowing each other. So how did, how did, how did you get here is what I want, really want to understand. So we can take the long the long way to get to that, but that yeah, is yeah. the long and short of this interview. And there's tons to discuss sure. from just our, you know, little text exchange before we got going here. So, yeah, um, yeah. You're where does this all macro. start for you? Yeah. Um, well, I've been doing music for many years now. I'm 27, um, but I've been playing guitar since I was a teen and sort of accepted the journey of music early on for better or for worse and uh, have been making records through different projects and different bands but uh, this is the so the Valley Heart Project this is our second album and yeah it feels like with the Valley Heart Project it feels like the next step for what we've done in the past and uh, we've just sort of put out music and I've had a small but dedicated fan base sort of just keep growing. And this record feels like an extension of that sort of on the outside. From the inside, lyrically speaking, um, there's not much to it. It's just sort of me writing about experiences in my life. And for this album, it was uh, sort of the the next step of, of sort of understanding the relationship of, of health, mental health and time and presence and vulnerability and all these concepts sort of packed in there. Um, and sort of after the fact, sort of seeing the connection with the old material. Um, but yeah, it's sort of just a natural progression, I think, of where we've, where we've come from. So the out, you know, it clearly to me belongs in, in the catalog. And I don't know how it has a tooth and nail sound or something. Like it's not that there's a tooth and nail sound. I really don't believe that there is a tooth and nail sound. But there's a quality that artists have sometimes that mm. just does feel like it would resonate. I know you're uh, buddies with Adam and that Adam is part of the discovery of this band. And I think A&R yeah. guys and the lineage of people that understand this like unspoken part of what makes an artist make sense on Tooth & Nail, at least vaguely, because a lot of artists could be on a lot of labels. And you, you've been on Rise Records and you know mm-hmm. other stuff. You could be on other labels too, but something feels you know right about it being Tooth & Nail. So let's yeah. look at your history of getting here. You know, how did you grow up encounter Tooth and Nail? Um, what are those influences for you? Um, you know, what's your family of origin? I know you do production stuff and all. You know, all that. But how does how did how do you get to making this record? What's that background that gets us to that of your long term yeah. of your history? 
Sure. Yeah, well, I grew up um, on a lot of tooth and nail bands and solid state record bands. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was in this metal Christian metalcore band called Exiting the Fall. And it sounded exactly how you'd expect a band like that to sound with that name. Um, and we, yeah, we went pretty hard. Like we toured and put out records and like had our thing. And, you know, that was sort of my scene and world as a teenager. It was just sort of head down and trying to play those shows. And it was definitely on the the heavier side of stuff, but all the while was still into bands, you know, that were on the tooth and nail side too, on the softer stuff. Like Copeland is one of my favorite bands of all time and been a fan of that band for a very long time. Um, and stuff that they've done. And so sort of that sound along with other genres, but a big part of that sound came from like my teenage years and, and listening to the heavier side of that stuff, but also the lighter side. Um, so yeah, just kind of just soaking in that influence naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of when Adam and Tooth and & Nail approached, it was just like, whoa, this is cool. And I mean, the sort of sound of this record, like you're saying, is is very early Tooth & Nail sort of style in some ways. And that was not intentional by any fact it was just sort of a natural progression that i think lined up really uniquely and really cool um but yeah that's the background played in that heavy band did some stuff there and then we broke up started writing solo stuff and then wanted to take that sound and make it into a rock sound and then that's where valley heart came up and so i think there's just influences from that era um that feel very nostalgic that feel very intrinsic to sort of the sound and the songs that i write so I'm just curious about like what age were you then generationally to be hearing Copeland and this heavy music and Christian metal and hardcore, all that different stuff when you're a teenager. What exact years are that and what, what albums are them? We could do your favorite three uh, you know, albums in the Tooth & Nail catalog if you could paint us the context for what age yeah. you were and where that was and everything. I think it was high school for me, which was 2010, 2011. And I remember when I discovered Copeland, they had just or they had released You Are My Sunshine and then they like broke up or something. And it was like, shit, like I just started getting into this band and then they sort of just disappeared and sort of really got into their catalog after they had broken up and to their previous records, Eat, Sleep, Repeat and all those and like really got into them. And then they released Xora later and like came back and I've seen them since and stuff like that. Um, But it was early on when they were in that break and sort of fell in love with You Are My Sunshine and just the production on that record but at the time I didn't really even understand about production it just had a feel and and sort of a scarcity that was so beautiful um scarcity that's a cool word yeah dig into there tell me more about that I mentioned your your production mind so this is good to talk I analyze that production because that's Sprinkle and Aaron Marsh so what what's better yeah you know. Well, I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I love going back to records that I didn't understand about production wise when I was maybe younger and like listening with fresh ears and being like, oh, wow, like now that I know about sort of mixing and production and all this stuff, like how will my brain interpret those things? And I've mm-hmm. done that with You Are My Sunshine and a lot of Copeland stuff. And it's I find it's just every part of the production has a purpose, right? Where like mm-hmm. every element serves a specific purpose where like with guitar, sometimes, you know, you can pan hard right, hard left, and there's just a big guitar sound, and you layer those. And I find with the records like You Are My Sunshine, if there's like a guitar part, it's like one mono part, and it's like doing something very specific. And I find that I've been more into that stuff and, and definitely like inspired by just less, not like a less is more approach necessarily, but just like if there's going to be a part 
I heard someone say something once that said it like this, is when you hear like five guitar parts, you're hearing, quote, guitars. Like you're hearing the concept of guitars. But when you hear like one single guitar part, you're hearing a person play, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I know that not every situation, that's the right move. But I think on You Are My Sunshine, there's just some parts where like everything is sitting so well um, in their, in its own pocket. And I think it, it sounds big. It sounds full, even though it has less, you know? Yes. Okay, I'm completely interested in this exact thing, so I'm going to stay mm. here. All right, <laughs> let's do it. A little bit. Um, scarcity is a cool word. You know, people say spacious and people say ambient and stuff like that, but the scarcity thing, um, or it's at least, or I don't know if it's minimalism, but what, either way, it slices all the way down to a person. It's personal or it's yeah. intimate in that way. Like when one person, and I think... If I understand correctly, the guys in Copeland used to get irritated, eventually very irritated at Aaron up to my You Are My Sunshine because he wouldn't let them play more than one string on the guitar at once at some point. Because <laughs> oh, I think it's really? that same principle that you're saying that, yeah. like, why would you strum a chord? It's like six, like you six guitar tracks. Why six strings? How about the expressiveness of a single string? Like, if it's a violin, you don't just rake the I mean, you might, but the expressiveness yeah. is in the vibrato of the single note interpreted by the beautiful player that completely understands what he's expressing and just the touch on that one note is everything and it's a person and it's it's yeah and this all our music is about that like if you strip away the noise and the sound and all of it you're left with you know an aaron gillespie or aaron marsh or somebody that's like it's just their voice being them you know Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's all that that's all that you really connect with. You're connecting. You feel, the music is all this dressing to help you connect to another person's feeling, yes. thoughts, emotions, or something. And we use music to open that channel. Is the way I see right, that. right. And sometimes and, that production can be an extension of that vision, right? But I think we've both experienced sometimes the dressing. It's like getting you get a salad and it's too drenched. It's like, whoa, dude, I don't even know what are the ingredients in this thing anymore because it's just all I'm tasting is the dressing, right? Right. Um, and I think product that happens with production sometimes where, you know, you can, and I'm always finding that balance. And I think it's cool to still be on that journey of like finding that right touch, um, because it could definitely be a little too heavy sometimes. And sometimes people that want that, but I always find it's like a nice balance and it's a sweet spot when you have just like grade a songwriting, you can strip all the elements. You can give someone a piano or an acoustic and the main songwriter, and you can have them play a song in a room and it'll translate beautifully. Or you could have the version with tons of production. And if they both hit in strong ways, you know you got something special, I think. Yeah, so you're lining up all these elements. And if you made a food parallel, one time I went to a James Beard award-winning restaurant. It was like after our show, and they invited us over to somebody that at the show worked at this restaurant. So we got to go to this restaurant that I would never go to. All right. Um, you know, or know what to order or anything. You're on, you're on a said, different level gonna, of touring. Gonna, you're going to fancy restaurants after shows, man. That's that's some next-level shit. Well, it was <laughs> great. It's after Bell an acoustic anymore. show. Awesome. Well, that's the key to acoustic shows. We do them a little earlier, and then afterwards, we might even catch a movie or go to a nice restaurant. <laughs> it's, nice. it's really it's nice. Um, it's nice. But this one, they just said, "Yeah, come over. The restaurant's open, you know, and we'll feed you, and we'll you don't have to order." They're just gonna, yeah. they brought out food to us by selection, and the first things they brought out, like the the atmosphere that we were in, the context was just so. I was like, "Wow, I'm really somewhere doing something before I've tasted anything." I was already mm. tuned in, you know. And then when they brought out the first food, it was like fruit or something. I was like, okay, fruit. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? Peel it and hand it to me? You know? Yeah. But it's the best fruit I've ever had by a long wow. shot. <laughs> I don't know how. It was just wow. like a piece of watermelon or something. And then 
but I realized I'm in their content. I'm sure it was the great whatever it was, but it wasn't covered yeah. with something. There was no nothing. It was just there is beauty in this simplicity if you pay deep enough attention. And so yes. I think that's kind of the art of music production is um, you said something else in there, which is like um, made me think of it. It's had to. It's like this coherent context that when you look around in it, you find more and more. What did you? You said something that I can't remember the words you used, but it made me think that when you explore, when you go back and listen to the recordings, you find a purpose for everything that you hear. Yeah, like every single detail that you, with your very selective mind that analyzes productions, yeah, looks at, you find intention there. That blows my, like, when you find that in an art, any art form movie, same thing. It's like, oh, everything I can think of to scrutinize, they clearly have thought of this before I discovered. Right, right. And I think you see it in movies and you see it in all art. And it's, a lot of it's about sort of paralleling ideas, right? Like contrast, like making something sound small, but then sort of capturing it in another part, making something sound big or like something sounds dark and sort of having like a brighter vocal or something to contrast. And I mean, yeah, it's like not to sound like, you know, sort of weird about it, but it is this like kind of artistic thing where you are trying to balance and it's like cooking, right? It's like you want to make sure all those flavor profiles are in order. And I think I see production in the same way. Um, and the context thing you're saying is really interesting, like sort of being in that headspace. And I always think about that, mm-hmm. right? Because I think records are so dynamic. And I think about my favorite albums. And they're never because they're the best album from the band. It's always, there was, a, there was a season of my life that I was listening to that record. And it sort of means something in the context of that season, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's just a cool thing about putting out music because people are going through stuff and that record might mean something to their part of life because it's sort of dynamic with the experiences in their own life, you know? And mm-hmm. it's yes. like the, the brain works that way. And, and you know, even how I've heard something recently, this has happened to me where you can hear a song and just think, wow, this sounds slower than I remember. It's because your heart, you know, I've been on a run before and I'm like, this song sounds slow. And, you know, your brain and your body is even fighting that sort of dynamic of context and how it interprets music Things yeah. aren't as like sort of set in stone as we think. Everything is sort of dynamically playing. And when you make music or art, you kind of throw it out there and see how it interacts, you know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's it. I, I don't even believe that we are separate from our context as a, as organisms. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. there's a real blend of me and not me that's all a bigger thing. Or, you know, I know that's fruity sounding, but it is obviously no, kind, no, no, kind no. of No, no, no. I true. love fruit. <laughs> And the yeah, music no. can connect people, you know what I mean? Because it's all, like, everything you experience is an interpretation of something, yeah. basically. And yeah. so if you're running, or if you were at this time, you're like, the the music isn't this separate, distinct thing. It's, the music only exists as you are interpreting it, and as the person was interpreting it. And then the closer that can line up, that can be really cool, but you can have a very different experience of music than the the person who made it. But either way... It's a dynamic interpretation that you're experiencing, whether it's in your ear, AirPods or yeah. Uh, yeah. If it's on the speakers or if you're running or if you're sad when you listen to it. It changes. Right. It. The thing right. is different. The, the thing never repeats. If yeah. you listen to music twice, it's not the same experience. So true. Yeah. And I think that is the listener's interpretation of that art for me is as valid as what my intention was, you know? And I mm-hmm. think that's really cool because it sort of depersonalizes the art and it's like, cool, like, everyone can experience their own thing and and yeah it's funny what you just said about that everything is context including our own existence I've been thinking about that and I not to transition about fate stuff here but like growing up in a context where 
there was a line in the sand of like what's real and what's not, what's right and what's wrong. I think sort of transitioning to a place now where I don't, that's messed up my sense of connectivity because of that sort of stark mm. context. Mm-hmm. Seeing it in this way now has been so liberating, but I think for some time before you can get to the liberating part, it can be frightening because it just feels like you're free falling in sort of relativity, right? But that there's something there where it's like when you understand you're a dynamic context to everyone else and to everything else, and it's not just on the x-axis of where you are, like I'm in the United States right now, but also on the y-axis of time where like there have been people that existed hundreds and thousands of years before me with their own formative experiences. It's it can be trippy and existential and but if you sort of see it in a light that allows you to say, wow, it's that like nihilistic, but like in a freeing, beautiful way that like nothing matters, but I'm gonna sort of give my peace to connect to people, <laughs> you know? Well the connection's real though. I mean, you know, like you could say you can make everything yeah, to me it's just when like you make eye contact with a stranger or something and share a moment, mm. like that's not false. That is real. Mm. So you know what I mean. Like you just look at somebody, and you go, "Oh, we're having the same. Ex- we're both in this room. Have like we're having, you know, mirrored experiences." But you go, "Oh, right. We're both. The experience I'm having isn't just me. This person too. Holy yeah. shit! Like that's scary sometimes if you just make eyes with a stranger. You know? Yeah. Um. But through music, it's like the safe way to do that. It's like wait. I feel what they feel, and we both feel something. I mean, we don't really interpret it the same, but yet yeah. we're both experiencing this track or something that the artist put out there. We feel the same, and maybe people in a different time and place could feel the same thing, but maybe not because it partly is interpreted through our culture at this time too. So there's that other yeah. variable. It's like if you heard Zayo 40 years ago, you wouldn't have co- – almost nobody could have probably connected to it. Yeah, but then there's some something would have happened if they heard it. They would have caused something yeah. in them. Like you know, if you went back a hundred years and played somebody's Zayo, so, yeah. it would have affected them emotionally. Totally. But they wouldn't have really been able to connect. So it's all there's this real nowness to music that's special. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I think like you're saying, music plays a role and genres play a role sort of in each cultural and I've been mm-hmm. talking to a friend about this actually and Thinking about sort of, and I'm curious to get your take on this, but sort of the the hardcore scene that I'm not really a part of at all anymore. But when I was a teenager, I was in that like metalcore scene and that sort of that punk element, I feel like it's not intrinsic to a certain genre, but it's found its energy in different genres, like in the hip hop mm-hmm. culture in the late yes. 80s, early 90s. Now it's like almost in like the hyper pop scene, right? Where you have like these people like on computers and glitching shit out and like really pushing music to the boundaries. And I always describe it. It's that quality of like the stuff your parents would hear, or maybe you would even hear and be like, I don't fucking get that. Like that's, that's exactly. a, I don't understand that. And I'm always careful with that. Cause sometimes I'm, you know, I'm in my late twenties and there's like a generation before me now making art and, and I'm, and I'm looking and I'm like, man, there's some stuff here I don't get. And I have a lot of conversation. I had a Gen Z roommate and we would have like hour long conversations about this concept. And, sort of trying to never judge because I'm like, yeah, like someone would have listened to the music I was listening to as a teenager and been like, what the fuck is this? So there's always a sense of that. And I think you got to be careful not to sort of discard that because that can be some of the stuff that's really pushing the envelope sort of on what's to come, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's exactly right. And and I'm trying to understand younger generations, you know, because I don't, I mean, 
I just have a strong desire to like, I want to connect, I want to figure out what boundaries they're pushing that I wouldn't naturally understand. Right. So I'm looking to the younger people that obviously get it like you. And then I hear you, whenever I talk to younger people, they are talking about younger people that I didn't even know existed. (laughs) So I'm like, (laughs) like if you're thinking about what younger people are doing, this real and pushing boundaries, I'm too away from that. And I've got to figure it out is the way that my mind works on that. But it also comes in this rejection of like, once you, establish yourself in a genre or a scene or whatever the stuff that comes after you or the younger stuff you don't you automatically don't like it or feel like it's a downhill version of what you did and i I don't Mm. know if that's good or bad but i mean to me for a while it felt like any band that came out and after 2005 was just some new band to not pay attention to that was derivative and that's not true but it it felt that way like a you know and part of it is like any genre, I do think they go downhill. I think grunge went downhill and became mm. new metal. And there was some good stuff all the way through. And it's not, you can't really judge it. Like Limp Biscuit's great too. But, sure, sure. You yeah. know, that's that's a downhill from, it's not the fresh, it's, it's breaking boundaries in ways, but yeah. really it's just pushing limits. And I think our scene got that way with production itself to where hmm. productions were these factories to optimize sounds to be biggest, loudest, heaviest, or whatever. And that becomes disinteresting until something fresh happens and there's new types of boundaries that are breaking. Yeah. And so now I'm far enough removed from it. When I hear music like Valley Heart, I'm thinking, okay, I hear new things here. And when hmm. I explore it, I find exciting things. And they're not even in the same paradigm of like, I guess the paradigm that I felt like we were in was, uh, Clean distortion, light, mm. heavy, screaming, pretty singing, weird time, good feeling time signatures. Like those are the contrasts sure. that we're playing with or whatever. Sure, sure. And then, um, you know, you're playing with an entirely different contrast. I heard you say on Black Sheep podcast that that You Are My Sunshine album is like really dark, but also feels good or something. There's a dark and light there, but it's yeah. not in a heaviness context. It's in some other context. And I hear in your music... Yes. All these dynamic, like it's, I don't know if it's light and soft or big and little, or I'm curious what language you have for like, what are the um, contrasts? Because one dimensional music is what sucks. It's like, yeah. new metal is heavy. The lyrics sure. are dark. It's all sure. one dimensional. So sure. what are the new contrasts that, you know, you hear in productions of either that you try to make or you hear in younger people? What are those yeah, crossed totally. elements that are seem contrary, but you put them together? Yeah. Well... I think you brought up a good point. I, I'm still, you said so much good stuff. I'm trying to like yeah, I'm reel sorry. it all in. No, no, as you're good. Just to, to go your here. point if about. people don't like this kind of talk, then I say, love it. skip it. <laughs> yeah, skip it. Next pod. Um, I'm thinking about what you said about dilution versus fusion. And I think about that often, right? At what point is something being diluted or is it like a fusion of a new sound and, and is it growing or decaying? And yeah, nothing really more to say other than like, I'm always fascinated to hear other people's take on that. I'm like, because sometimes that decay can become a new sort of seed, like a decomposed seed to like another genre that it was influenced by, you know? So I think just like things die in nature mm-hmm. and like use those deaths to grow new things. I feel like those death of genres and of cultural impacts are important for sort of new things to rise, you know? So just wanted to throw that out there because I thought that was really interesting. So we um, can appreciate new metal and be glad it's dead. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right? Know, Dead metal. Dead, you know, wrong, but, yeah. <laughs> um but to your point about contrast and going back to that with production and songwriting, yeah, I think so. I think about a record like You Are My Sunshine, and I think that more than the like the big and the loud versus those dynamics and quiet, I think that record 
sort of contrasts emotions and it, it's really intentional. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with when things sound the way they do with the lyrics, how the lyrics are playing, even down to like the guitar tone, there is a relationship between all elements. And when I hear You Are My Sunshine, I hear it's this summer record. It's like in a lot of ways bright. It's fun. It makes me, it releases all sort of, you know, chemicals in my brain of serotonin and dopamine. But then you have songs like Strange and Unprepared that you're like, oh, like this is, this is a summer record, but it's also about the end. It's like that end of summer record too, where it's the sadness of summer, which feels like, you know, oxymoronic, like the sadness of summer because we think of summer as bright. So I don't know if Aaron's intention was to do any of this stuff, but it feels like there's a, there's just sort of, it's like a film picture where you're, and I think that goes with the album art too. Again, another dynamic thing. It's like this beautiful sunny mm -hmm. day, but it's through the lens of like this sort of distorted, dark paradigm. And I just love those contrasts. And I try to do that with like, instead of, you know, if a song lyrically is heavy and dark, I try to contrast it with maybe like brighter sounds or something that doesn't sort of drag everything down. But like, again, in cooking, you have something in this element, you want to sort of offset it with a different element. So playing with those sort of poles and parallels is something I find just really fun to do. And the music that's inspired me has done that um, a whole bunch. So, yeah. That's very cool. So, like, if you take the first track on the album, Birth, can you tell me some stuff about the decisions on that? Because the thing I noticed about it is it starts, okay, like, it comes on, like, okay, I'm tuning in. Like, what, what kind of attention do I want to give this album? Or what is what are they trying to get me, what mood are they trying to get me in to then deliver? And I hear, like, a intimacy, first of mm -hmm. all. Like, it's, it's calm and intimate. And intimate as in close. But by the mm. end of the track, big, yeah. But it was right. was it up close, and then did you just go farther? Or what what happened? What language do you use for where that song starts and ends? And that sure, what is that? Yeah, well, that song initially was supposed to be just me and the acoustic, um, so it's supposed to be really intimate. And then after having it gel with the other songs, I was like, man, I feel like it needs more movement. So we re sort of scratched it, and I redid it on my own, um, and. Yeah, I think, again, sort of looking at the lyrics, because here's what I think, right? I think, like you said about the songwriter in the song, you can strip away everything and have a great song, right? And then where, where's your compass of, like, direction of production or even genre? Like, how do you know how to build that song? So sometimes I'm like, I feel sort of in, sort of decision anxiety. I'm like, this could go this way or this could be like this mm -hmm. or we could throw drums here or no drums or, like, it could be in this key or this key or we can slow the tempo down. And I'm always like, man, how do you sort of guide your compass to know to make good decisions? And a lot of the times it's the lyrics. I just read the lyrics and I'm like, cool, like what what am I nice. trying to elicit here? And I think that song, the parallels there is about like it's a song about death, but it's comparing it to sort of imagery of space and going on tour, like being on a long drive, like a road trip. Um, and I'm like, wow, like it should feel like an ascent of some sort. And again, some of this can get a little heady and fruity, so I apologize, but just like the idea that something is sort of blossoming or blooming or, or sort of moving up in a way, sort of creating this dimension that parallels the lyrics in that way and sort of having it start dimension. really close. Yeah. Having it start one. really close and then sort of really blossom out and sort of open up a whole bunch to the point of where you feel like you're sort of in this wall of sound just felt like it worked with the lyrics and was sort of the emotion I was trying to elicit. So, Yeah. There's just themes yeah. on that one that lend itself to that style of production, if that makes sense.
I think that's the dynamic, the new dynamic that I'm starting to be attracted to and want to play with is that one where it's like, okay, I know where I am in a sonic coherent space. I'm in a small room with this person right here with me. But then that's by the end of the song, I'm what am I on a cliff looking over an ocean? But I, yeah. it somehow connected me there or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. where am I? I'm not in that little room with that guy singing a song right in my ear anymore or whatever. Right. Like, how do you and then make that work without losing coherence? That's kind of the because, like, if you make totally. a rock song in a genre, it's the coherence is already built in. It's like, oh, the kick is here, the thing is here, the guitars are panned. Like, the decision fatigue goes way down when you're trying to like be in a, a genre, and the audience already knows, oh, this genre is this way. So right. it sounds you know like that. That's like a, I'm not saying it's bad. It's really awesome, but um, that those genres evolve and exist with the rules that they have. But you know, it's a shortcut to tune the audience, the producer, the musicians, the singer. They can all follow yeah. that genre, and somehow we're post either post genre or inventing new genres. And it has to do with this whole shift of like listening in AirPods and freaking yes. you know like that. We're the, all the rules are gone. Forget yeah. all the genres. I don't know if they're coming back. I don't know yeah. if there will be new genres or if we're just out there. But decision, the decision trees become massive when you go to like do a song now because you yeah. literally could do anything. Th that's so true. And I think that's exactly why I'm saying, for me, I get really sort of confused when I don't know where to anchor the decisions. So you have to create almost a color palette of like, cool, like I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to create creativity mm -hmm. by sort of limitation of these palettes. So you're not just sort of in la la land and just like so confused. And that goes down from lyrical writing to like, yeah, what mic you're going to put on the kick, you know? And I think something that I see changing in rock music specifically and the rock music that I'm, that I like and looking back and even having this some records feel like a co like super cohesive, right? Where it's like the, the snare sounds the same on the whole thing, maybe with some light mm -hmm. adjustments. Mm -hmm. And I think some people are afraid sometimes of sort of, let's do different kits on the record. Let's like really get creative with like the vocal production. Like let's, for this song, let's try putting the mic through, you know, a J JC120. I don't know, let's get weird. And people are scared of that, I understand, because again, you can open doors that just feel confusing. But I think not being afraid of things sounding like, uh, incoherent or, or like just not relatable like they're gonna relate and I think there's a confidence there and I, and I was struggling with this at the beginning of the record I was like man like so many different genres and stuff on this record and I was talking to our bassist and he's like Kev like you know what like it's you writing the songs like it's gonna yeah. translate just trust like have that trust that it's gonna translate and after that conversation I was like cool like I'm gonna let go I'm gonna follow the, the intuition of creativity and like cross my fingers that like we're going to mm. hang this piece up on the wall. I'm going to take a couple steps back and be like, yep, it works. And I think it That's does. So, so good. yeah, so, I'm so good to hear that. It's validating to hear, um, you know, when you like something, when you hear somebody talk about it to this degree. It, but yeah, that confidence is key. If you if you can have it, if you can borrow it, if you can manufacture it at times. Yeah. Then you can operate out of an intuition, not out of a calculation, basically. Exactly. So even well if it, even the confidence isn't bulletproof, you got to act out of it, you know, oh, and then man. that will yeah. be, even if you can't articulate it, that can be the anchor for other people. So if, going back to like leaning back on the lyrics or your original feeling that started the song, if you can yeah. keep that anchor and keep that confidence and you can get somewhere, other people have a good chance of being able to take that journey of at least yeah. how you hurt at what your, your journey to get there. Like something will yeah. work out of that. Yeah, and that's, a, that's, very that's cool. a, a huge point. And I think, so I demo out 
all the songs mostly before we go into a studio or anything. And on this record specifically, before when I was younger and did other records, I would always try to recreate a lot of the sounds, mainly because I wasn't as good as recording and things were like just peaking and shit. Um, but before it was like I wanted to recreate it and it never sounded the same no matter how, you know, the amp could have been a thousand dollar amp that we did it on. It just didn't work. And it, I was, I would always get bummed out. Now I sort of, and I've worked with a producer that uh, is completely open to this, just import a lot of what I've done and in in, done in the demos into the real session. And that's exactly what we did for this record. A lot of the sounds are literally the first time I grabbed the guitar and did the demo. There are just whole sounds, guitar sounds, key sounds, even some vocal parts, um, drum loops that were just from my initial Logic demo that we imported into Pro Tools. And it was a little tough sort of blending the sort of what we did in the studio versus like what I did at home. But I think it ended up being a nice mesh of sort of experimentation versus like backbone recording. Cool. Well, it's, got, it's landed in a really cool spot. Um, and I think you said vocal treatment experimentation. That I guess that's the biggest thing right now to me um, is just the use of, well, first of all, there's the use of space all the way around um, and the fact that people are listening in headphones a lot. I think that's a big, big deal. And mm. then that enables the vocal production to just be completely wide open. Um, yeah. The music that I that's doing that for me right now that I can't stop with, and maybe nobody listens to it other than me, but I uh, love Casey Musgraves and uh, Billie Eilish. I know a lot of people love Billie Eilish, but those yeah. two those two are doing production stuff. I don't know who the producer... I mean, I know how Billie Eilish and her brother produced, but... Yeah. Um, Something about th about those two artists for me to just keep. There's just so much to explore when I listen in there, and I still hadn't found the end of what is enchanting about the way. And a lot of it is vocal production. Yeah, um, like um, there's that Billie Eilish song that um is for like the James Bond soundtrack, and it starts the same way. It's just this close, you know, a lot of her stuff yeah. is so close. Like, oh my gosh, I, she's in my yeah. ear, and then it gets so it can even get super epic. Like it's this giant landscape, and it's like, how do they? You know, they're yeah. connecting all that stuff and they're using these vocal reverbs that like are very, it feels like somebody managing the effects chains yes. is a musician in the band. Like it's somebody, it's like yes. somebody has the drums, somebody has the bass, somebody's riding the synth yes. on the reverb and playing automation. effect it's and automation all every, around. Yeah, exactly. Just completely, yeah. completely managing my ear and it just, I'm, I trust it. I trust this, these people so much or something like they're not going to leave me hanging. My ear's just going to be yeah. able to find things to just take me through the song or whatever and you know totally. some of that um i hear in your music so that i'm curious what what that what does that mean to you when you're in there automating mixing what's your producer's role and how does that all fit together for you and me yeah. how you get from that song idea to these final mixes what's the philosophy oh man yeah that's a great point especially about billy eilish what you're saying i think so they work with like space so well with vocal productions i don't think anyone's doing it like that right now just like they have, I think they've had like 30 stacked harmonies and vocal and sometimes they're just dry. It's like a micro shift on there and like no reverb. So dry. So dry, right? And it's this like space and it's a symmetrical stereo field of just like these, in it's just, the only way I could put it is just intentional, right? Because I think mm -hmm. the days, that, and that, that's what I'm trying to say, like reverb, right? Just throwing a verb on the bus and like just having this like washed out reverb on the vocal all the time. You can do that and that's totally fine. 
But I think the intentionality in the vocal production where it's like, nope, we're going to like ride this with no reverb for two minutes and then we're going to like throw a send on it and just like have the vocal with like a five second decay just like, because that your ears will be like, whoa, like I'm in a space right now, you know? So it's like, it's like how we play with guitar pedals, right? Like each part has a different, you throw a delay on this part. It's like the same with vocals. It's just like being that intentional about vocals um, is I feel like where people are like, want it. Like I know I'm, I feel inspired by that. Um, and a lot of that stuff comes in. So like I said, I do a lot of the demoing out for the songs, <clears throat> excuse me, on my computer, just sort of start writing, demo out the drum parts. Some songs are way more fleshed out than others that maybe sort of emerge through us hanging out and jamming and sort of, there's sort of two ways Valley Heart songs, songs come about. One is the demo process. I sort of demo everything out, show it to the guys. We make some brief revisions the other way is we get together in a room and sort of build a song organically. And then I go back and take that iPhone demo or whatever, bring it to my computer and then sort of build a demo from the organic uh, sort of band relationship. And I love having that differentiation because I think it's, it's a different sort of playing field where you have dynamics that you can't find just being in your room with like, you know, MIDI keyboards. But there's also stuff that you can do there that you can translate to a live setting that also brings out cool stuff when you bring it to a band. So I try to demo everything out and come really prepared with sounds that I know I want to replace and sounds that I know I want to keep. And we work with uh, Kevin Billingsley. He's our, so the way we said it is he co-produced, co-mixed and co-engineered the record and I co-produced, co-mixed and co-engineered the record. Cool, where, cool. Yeah, yeah. So that. sort of like, yeah, he did, a, he he was the guy that was like, cool, like we're gonna, we rented out a studio and, and had that like big, good space. We did drums in a big room. Um, and he, you know, sort of helped harness a lot of the like demo stuff that I put, but I think it was really, really good on his end. Cause I don't know a lot of producers. We have that relationship where he trusts me and I trust him. A lot of guys wouldn't want to be like, yeah, let me just throw in my demo session and we're going to keep this guitar part. And, you know, even though it was recorded on a direct interface. So he trusts me in that, like, I know that this is going to work and I trust him. So we kind of worked that way. And he just helped bring the songs. We redid drums, we redid bass, we did the rhythm guitars. I love doing vocals with him. We did vocals at the studio as well. So we did three weeks with him, had the demos, imported the stuff. And then I rented out a studio myself for another week and a half in Boston where I had the time to work with the guys and we could do whatever we want. And we were like kids in a candy store, right? We're like Mm. all the little weird things that we wanted to get done, like feedback or like key stuff or harmonies or percussion. We got done in that week and a half. Um, and then another couple weeks after I did the rest of the stuff in my house with the initial demo. So it's a kind of a blend because it's hard to justify when you're in a big expensive studio, like, Hey, like, let me throw like my delay pedal into this keyboard and let me mess around with this for six hours when you haven't cut vocals yet. You know, like it's hard to justify that. So to have sort of both sections of, Hey, we have a concrete time. We got to get the backbone of the record done. But then you also have another space that's separate where you're allowed to have like fun but also a set amount of time to work with that stuff was sort of a good blend and so we cut the record that way and then Kevin and I we co-mixed it through I forget the name of the app but there's tons of them now with the pandemic with pandemic happened you can stream it's like a plug-in on your master chain he was streaming whatever he was hearing in pro tools to my headphones and instead of going back and forth on email we were sort of making mixed decisions he would come up with a bass mix we would hop on a call and just spend hours sort of like not do like, you know, can you bring the snare top down a little bit? I feel like it's a little, you know, you know, it's a little too bright or something. You know, we would just go into the more minute details about things 
And that worked for us. And that's how we sort of did the mix. Like through, I was in this room here in Montreal, he's in Portland, Maine, and we did it remotely. And, and that's how we got the mixing done. That's really, really, really cool. And I think that is on the track of what, um, what's going to emerge as the, as maybe some newer paradigms. Uh, there was, it used to be the industry was like, you'd have these producers and they were actually like, if you go farther back than, than, than my time, even you have these producers who really work for like, they're like more on the labels in the labels domain than they are the artist where they, these, they just have these artists that have these songs or whatever. And then, it's the producer and the label's job to make them into the product or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. And then it gets totally. to eventually you have these artist producers like the Aaron Sprinkle types and the do-it-yourself types that learn the technology and they have a yeah. different, way more collaborative point of view. And it's so much good kind of came out of that. Um, but then after that, it became all the way to, you know, we've been through this period where it's like super DIY where it's literally, you're like, well, why do I need a producer? I just do it all myself. Yeah. Um, but there is a flaw. <laughs> there's flaws with that. Exactly. A lot of flaws because exactly. it's the easiest thing in the world to lose perspective when if it's just you being some god in the studio and you say you don't you you lose perspective at some point of what is makes sense or doesn't. Hundred percent. And you don't have anybody to trust anymore. At some point, 100%. you go what what we just what like at some point you get lost in that. And yep. so I'm hearing the things that emerge that seem to work really well are these. There's way more partnershipy, way more collaborative way more interactive and it's weird because the technology made it where we could do everything in our basement but now yeah. the technology is making it where we can collaborate with the people that are most on our wavelength even if they're in portland maine in real yeah. time so right right th- and i can have perspective back in that i trust but it's not coming from some management industry type point of view yeah. it's like a collaboration with a person that holds a perspective that keeps me in balance or whatever. But what is that for you and Kevin? What is that part you trust him to do versus he, where was the, where are those divisions for you? Yeah. What uh, perspective is he able to offer in what realms? Yeah, that's a great point. I think you're hitting the nail on the head. It's, it's that balance, right? Cause I, there was a moment where I was like, man, should we just do this ourselves? Um, and I kind of did that with our last EP scenery. I did a lot. I did the, mixing all by myself i'd recorded vocals myself i really kind of took it on for four songs it pretty much ruined my ear <laughs> you know this is so <laughs> yeah, much yeah, work no fun at some point just like sitting there melodying my voice like it's like the word it's so uncreative it's just like oh mm-hmm. man like so you got to be careful because you can really get into a headspace where like some people are they're there to help you and I'm all about do it yourself. I'm all about like, again, do, being hands-on production. But for what I find that's helped for me with like a whole record, bringing on someone like Kev, who again, was just able to be like, hey, I'm here to serve this project and to not necessarily, yeah, instill the vision of like producer, but like make decisions on what, what is best w- alongside with, with me was like really cool and really empowering. It had its own set of challenges, right? Because I think, 90% of the time it worked out great. We were like, cool, like which mic? And we would sort of have a discussion. And then there was like maybe 10% where we both felt very passionately about sort of different things. And it was like, well, who does get the final word, right? So I think there was this like push and pull sometimes. And we had to work through that, which was interesting, but ended up being really good. But yeah, his role was kind of to keep, a big part of his role was he did the first record the first LP for us. And I think another thing I wanted for Heal My Head was I wanted there to be this sonic glue that connected the two records because lyrically I felt that was present. 
So having Kev on board again as well, especially with sort of the genre kind of changing and leaning into different influences, felt like cool. Like he's going to bring his side of things that really connect the quote, I guess, Valley Heart sound that people really liked. So that we're also bringing in new people, but I think people who fell in love with the first record or the first EP or whatever will still have that sort of connectivity with that story. And again, a band like Copeland, I I find they've worked with different people, but sort of, I love how their records feel like there's a dynamic within their discography, right? Where like you see dynamics within, within albums, you're like, oh, song one plays well on song eight or all this stuff. I love when you just take even a step further back and you're just seeing how the story is being told within records. And I think a big part of working with Kev, his job was to how to keep this story within the Valley Heart uh, sorry, keep this record within the Valley Heart story, him being involved with this project for so long, instead of me just wanting to like really derail things and get creative, he really reined it in to make it sort of what it what it is now, which is something that is different, but still very sort of in that world. Yeah, thank you for going so deeply into that. We've covered one of your favorite three Tooth and Nail songs and one topic. Yeah. <laughs> just productive. <laughs> it's been great. There it is. Let's do a, let's let's try and shift on another. Tell me something else um, that's your favorite in the Tooth and Nail catalog, and we'll we'll use it to bridge to another topic. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. Um, well, I was I don't know if they were Tooth and Nail or Solid State, but was big Under Oath guy. You know, love love that shit for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like that sort of heavy. That was sort of the world that really spoke to me when I was a teenager and and I think a lot of those like darker heavier roots I still fuck with a lot and try to find ways to incorporate into our music but yeah it was really into yeah I think what you're saying that whole post hardcore world and under Earth definitely played a big part of that that's cool um do when you look at under Oath and the type of career they had or have, you know, mm-hmm. that just keeps on going. Were you inspired by, you know, is it the kind of thing you want to have a career or be on, like, what were your ambitions to, like, if you've seen these other bands from the previous generation, do you seek to be big like them or go on tour or, you know, even the, yeah. the sound aside, what what did you see in the bands before you that you wanted to do or not do the same way? Sure. Career-wise? It's a great question. Um, I think 10 years ago I would have said, I want to, I want to be exactly like they were, right? Where like they were big, they kind of blew up and like had this moment. Um, I still love that in a lot of ways, but I think I've heard your interview with Aaron and other people, and you know, now realizing like, wow, there was a lot of unhealth in that, and wasn't necessarily a sustainable model. And I think a lot about that, and I think about sort of the burnout that people face, blowing up or things like that, right? And I think, yeah, I think they're on a different move now, but I think a lot of times seeing the pressure, the the dynamics of being in a band and like 100% like foot on the gas, like nothing else matters. I think as you get older, you I'm figuring out like how to mitigate that feeling of still wanting to do this professionally and full time, but also having a health that incorporates holistically other parts of my life, including my friendship with the guys in the band. And that's something, as you know, like being in a band, it's like being in like four different marriages in a way it's like just always being on the same page and having to communicate super well and you know seeing sort of under oath learn from that and like have to take a step away I've always found very fascinating sort of like listening to like what went wrong and what they did well and how 
there was tension and sort of animosity between people, but how they were able to bring it back and why were they, why were they able to bring it back and what forms of communication that they have now or expectations about what they do. So I don't know. I always think about, yeah, like what is it worth, right? Like sort of you getting huge, having your heyday, but then like ruining your friendships or like, or, you know, I don't know. I, I always find not that they not that I can say I can speak mm-hmm. for them on that, but just like the idea of just like going hard, burning out and just like, riding that wave um not that we've even had the opportunity to be at that level but i always wonder like just always wanting to stay hopefully grounded if that ever does happen you know yeah it's a funny thing to think about because if you go from net being it used to be only big major label bands or whatever and they didn't have the a lot of them didn't ever have the longest careers anyway but then if you're a diy band in the indie scene and then you have your moment and then you make it and then you're up and out there, everybody, like the pressure is obviously run this thing as big and hot, as yeah. loud and do as much as we can. You know, we just have yeah. to, the, and, and you said, I never heard anybody say it is like multiple marriages, but it is a polygamous kind of thing. It's like, well, you're married, <laughs> but it's like, you don't like you just the amount of people that just get married and then had to be on tour the whole time. And it's yeah. like, which one do you say no to your guitar player, your wife, your fans or whatever it is. It's just yeah. like. It, it the the mentality for sure during that boom was if you can get something that works you had to go unlimited like that's how and it's like that's how you get signed you show the label that no matter what you're on tour a hundred thousand percent of the time I mean right like it, and you can do everything and you're never gonna stop and then maybe people will give you a shot and so yeah. how do you ever get out of that and build something sustainable nobody ever thought about that right right and I think but that's the younger generation obviously will think about it you know yeah. Yeah, well, that dynamic has changed with the internet, you know, and how music can blow up on the internet now. And I think now we're asking that same question, but in different ways with like, how do you sustainably stay big on the internet if like your song blows up on TikTok or something? And I think there's always that dynamic, but to see how it's sort of changed, again, contexts within different sort of decades is always fascinating. Because like you're saying, I remember it was like, we got to get on tour, we got to get on tour. And it's now people tour, but it's like, now it's like, we got to blow up on TikTok. We got to do this, you know? And it's always these sort of stark phases. And not that any of these things are bad, but it's always just like understanding what you're trying to do and like how you're trying to incorporate music in your life. I think you got to be intentional on like how you approach sort of those desires, you know? So what's your career intention from here then? Yeah, I would love to tour. We're, we're trying to work on getting on the road, but I think it's just to keep creating music that we're excited about and putting out, records and and i got some solo stuff coming up and just making more music and and releasing more music and inspiring people through the stories told in music and just to do that as long as i can and yeah to bring it to other people when opportunities make sense touring wise and trying to figure that out still for sure so what's that one thing that if you're talking with your guys or your team or whoever it is that, that one break you're looking for, what would that what realm is that in for you? Like that if we can just get something to happen, what is Yeah. That? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. I think right now, I don't know in the like the big answer to that question, but I think right now sort of bringing this show on the road to like landing some sort of support, right, would be really cool to be able to bring this to like other audiences and other bigger groups that we haven't otherwise. Cause we've done the whole, like our own tour thing and it's, and it's great. Um, but sort of, yeah, in that touring world, definitely working our way up in that sense is sort of our short term, short term goal right now. Um, and something we're hoping to do 
in the next couple months a year yeah cool yeah yeah that's fascinating um it'll be interesting to see how it navigates and unfolds and, and all that kind of stuff yeah do you have um any other tooth and lrs we could discuss and i'll move to yet another topic man another just tooth kind of L- formatting the episode as we go by by this but yeah no yeah no i love it i love it um what other artists? I'm blanking. Could you can you shoot some That's out all right. for me? I didn't, I didn't prep you, but I was just thinking. You know, I I often ask people just what's three. I usually give people a heads up, and say what's the three standout things to you in the catalog or whatever. But I won't put you on yeah. the spot for that. But the question, what I'd want to attach to it and see if this brings something up is, um, and I don't want to go down to the level of the genres and the Christian labeling this and the Christian lyrics that. But I am curious about your thoughts on spirituality um, and how it interfaces with this the higher abstract levels than the way we've been talking on this podcast. I'm yeah. curious about your thoughts on how spirituality interacts with music. Cause I think that's a, a you know, use the word dimension. I think I've always thought mm-hmm. of spirituality as a dimension, a layer on top of music yeah. um, when it's unhealthy. It's just like some product for a yeah. dogmatic group of whatever, but on the, sure. the highest level, you know, music's always been attached to spirituality from chant. It came from Gregorian chants and stuff. Some of the first yeah. music and harmonies and stuff like it. That meaning layer of spirituality is all is a real one and it's a powerful one. So I'm, and, you know, I'm and some people in the Facebook group ask that about you guys and stuff like that too. But in what way does spirituality, when it's going well, interact with music mm-hmm. for you? And is there any artists that do that well for you, tooth and nail mm. or not? Yeah. Completely. Um, I think they're so related. And I think the the relationship there, I, f- I found, so I grew up in church, played at youth group, worship leader for years sort of thing. And, and whether I sort of affirm that experience is good or bad now, I think there was something about from an early age connecting to music in that way and connect and sort of making the connection with music and spirituality that early on. Right. Where like some mm-hmm. people like play guitar or like playing like school band and stuff like that. But for me, like early on, those things were synonymous. It was like leading worship, like tapping into that spiritual presence and that musical presence was something that like I got very early on again, for mm-hmm. better or for worse those that sort of synonymous link was there and i look back on that and i and i always wonder if there's a relationship and i absolutely do i mean i think about like you think chris martin from coldplay like he grew up and was a worship i always see these guys like aren't in the church anymore but like have that background i'm like what is the relationship there and i think there's something there where you're sort of tapping into that emotional sort of wave of how to express yourself and understand yourself in the context of the universe and I think when you walk away from sort of what you believed in faith, I think it can be tricky because I sort of lost that connection for a little bit within myself. But now I've just decided to lean into it, even though I don't have stark conclusions on what I know about God anymore. Um, I still find a way somehow, and I think a big part of that is music, to express myself in that way. And I still find it so beautiful. And in some ways, that's a big part of my connection with, with God and in, in lyrically speaking, it's like prayer for me now. Like I don't pray anymore really like on my knees and stuff like that. But I was having a conversation with my mom a while back and she was just like, do you pray anymore? And like my mom and I, my mom's amazing. We, she's still like this, like 
loves Jesus, you know, praying for me kind of thing. And we have so many good conversations about the social aspects of the church and God and the, the inerrancy of the Bible, like all, everything you can imagine. I'm like able to talk with my mom and, and she's like, well, do you pray? And, and I thought about it and I was like realizing that like my form of, of prayer, almost in this like Davidic psalmist way is like the music that I write on the page. Like that is that form of expression. And I think that is still a big part of like Valley Heart Project specifically is like that place to let those things out and to connect to others and like mm-hmm. a sense of, of, of God in, in that sense. So yeah, it's been a big part of just how I've maintained faith in my life and spirituality in my life has been my own music, but just, yeah, like, like you said, other artists and there are so many artists that do that for me. Um, Boney Veras, Carrie, uh, Sufjan Stevens is a huge one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there, I mean, I'm just naming a few, but finding that in other people's music is definitely my favorite thing. Um, it, it's that clues me into thinking that you know, as I said at the beginning of this, that, that it somehow belongs on Tooth and Nail or whatever, just that or could. Yeah, there's certain labels and groups that have the spiritual dimension in there, and I feel like I can hear it or feel it more than I like know what the words are. It's like it's not mm-hmm. about. I don't think it's about oh the topics about a Christian lyric. Sure, it's not not that. Um, that can help or whatever, but that usually isn't it. It's like. There's some feelings of like, I don't know how to describe. I really wish I could describe. I guess that's what's good about music is it's hard to use words for, right? I like yeah, words. Yeah, <laughs> I love words, but. Yeah. No, but I know what you mean. I you can't just, put it's words there. to or It's something. there. You, yeah. you feel, and, I, and sometimes I listen to a new artist or something and I'm just like, oh, like it's there. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know if I say it's something vertical or, or the emotion or the mood is almost like, you're small and there's something big. That's the right. way it feels. Like, I, I don't, I, I, I want to use the word desperate, you know, like, I'm desperate for you, oh Lord, mm-hmm. or something. But it's really just a smallness in relation to a bigness. Yeah. Right. That feels like some, it's not negative, but it's, it's, it, it's, it's scary or sad or overwhelming or something yeah. that's in there, but yet there's the confidence and yet something. And I don't get that with a general Ozfest band or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that is so true. And I find that the artists that I connect to with the most, like, yeah, and I'm again realizing like Justin Vernon, like Bon Iver, these guys, like they have that faith background. And even though they're not there anymore or whatever, there, yeah, there's a sense. In, but what's cool too is sometimes you're like you're saying, there's other artists that, that maybe tap into a different side of music and connectivity that it's more to take you out of that sort of existential space. And I, I'm curious on your thoughts on this. I was having a conversation with a friend about it and we were talking about the role of music, right? And we were talking about, I think people, especially in our world, have made music synonymous with like self-expression, right? And like your narrative. And that's as true as that is. And I believe that. I've also found that some other people use music to sort of almost act out in other narratives and like play characters and play roles. And like, you know, you guys, you got guys like Father John Misty or like people like that. And we were talking about the validity of that kind of art. And it's like, is it less genuine because they're playing another role? Because I think some people will look at that and be like, oh, like that guy is phony or fake or something. But is there sort of merit or is there still connectivity with other forms of expressing yourself rather than like, this is my story on a song? And it's not how I write, but I'm always like, it's it's interesting to see how people express themselves in music and how there are different ways, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's an outside of like, 
I, I know what you mean. It's like the music can either be plain or on the nose or about you or from one person's point of view, but it also can be about losing yourself yes. too yes. as the artist. And like, I guess the boundary for me is either if it's super one-dimensional and there's no vertical to it, or I don't like on the other end when it's too hip and the and it's like the person's identity is actually what I'm supposed to be noticing and worshiping. When yeah. I feel like somebody's trying to be too cool. It feels crazy. It's like, well, but you're yeah. just trying to draw me into worshiping you. Right. And I'm not saying it should be about like the God of the Bible or something. That's not a requirement. Yeah. But I like when I'm lost and I'm not it's not about a person even still. But Nonetheless, yeah. I need a person's personality to get me there. So take me somewhere is the way yeah. I feel like. Where can you take me that we all get lost in something? <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah, but it's it is interesting how there are there is the other side of that coin with like noise bands or like my bloody Valentine or even like yeah, Bon Iver stuff where like you have no idea what he's singing about, but there's just there is a, sometimes a beauty in that and like getting lost in that. And I just see it as a different sort of genre. I'm just like I like that stuff, but I also love Sort of that, like like you're saying, someone that maybe is tapping into the more narrative side of lyricism. But I, I don't know. I think finding a way to appreciate different ways. And I think people can be genuine and disingenu- disingenuous in either category. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you feel like music is some key. There's some authenticity that's required. That seems to be an element. And then it's like, I guess that can be faked too. But it's 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 pretty hard. It's pretty hard to fake authenticity. I think in yeah. a long form conversation or in you know music. When you get all the way down to that single string, that yeah, the you know if you can get it intimate enough, it's really hard to fake an authenticity. Even though even if it's a made up song about a made up topic, yeah. you feel like I I know that person. Like they've mm. exposed themselves to me, and I appreciate that as long as they didn't sing a tune or make me like I because if it was if you become really vulnerable and it goes bad you're a fool you look yeah. like an idiot right like what do you you know like you know and that's vulnerable to, to to do so if you can take it all the way down to intimate or dry single string whatever it's like that is what it is. that's an authenticity that is kind of undeniable and then layer a bunch of guitar tracks with perfect production you can't maybe you know like maybe that's just pure confidence at that point yeah yeah, but I think what you're saying is true. I think people feel it, right? I, I think it's almost something that we feel and we listen to. And I don't know, it's this unexplicable thing where I feel like we feel authenticity in music. And I was talking to someone about this recently where they were talking about how do you write, you know, do you have a pressure of writing because people already know your stuff or whatever. And I think protecting that, like, I'm writing for myself and like our group mm-hmm. and our crew rather than like, well, will people want to hear this or like writing for other people? It's a dynamic that's always in play when people know your your music, right? Because I think subconsciously you're always thinking about how will people understand this or relate to this. But I think preserving that sense of how do we just write stuff that we're excited about that we feel authentically great for is, is so important. Because I think when you're trying too hard to like make something relevant or cool or translate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People you can feel that. Feel that. Yeah, they yeah. just they just know it. They can sniff it out, and but think, it also works yeah. for the masses and sells more units when you do it. Like it yeah, does work, because, but at a shallower level, you can push more units, and like that's there. Yeah. So you yeah, have to so. understand. But it's like a, something about that is I, that's what I'm really getting out of this conversation. I'm really really appreciating it because if I'm thinking back about it, it's like you can narrow in on a demographic and get the right producer and sound for that demographic and you will be more successful if you do that 
but we're somehow post genre and post demographic where it's like these algorithms now are fine are like taking artists that are pure that are holding that thing that you're saying which is well regardless if i have this career or that i have to protect my connection to what i'm doing and i have to let the outcomes be whatever they are that can't if i chase a demographic or a sound or a something then i'll be stuck I, I i hear you having a sense of that that i'm sure i didn't have mm. earlier and that i know a lot of people reject entirely and chase a demo demographic of yeah people that like goth sounding stuff and like to wear sure. this kind of clothes like you can't get out of that if you chase that you know sure you you're pinned into it somehow as yeah. a product you know so that, yeah. that ability to do that and these algorithms are finding new sounds that nobody knew and then they'll get a million followers of just some algorithm, but yet there's no culture there yet. Like there's not a scene for it yet. Mm. So it's like it's not about it's not about an existing demographic. They're, these algorithms are somehow discovering new demographics to then yeah. build. It's yeah. weird. Like we're at a weird, weird, weird time in music where uh, post music you know, all bands are off or something. Whatever so I'm I, saying. To me, it's post music. Yeah, post music. That's what I'm calling post it. Post music. Post music. I mean, I don't well, know. What does that, that mean? I don't know, but I that's so. Yeah, you think about, you know, think about my dad, right? Like when he was a teenager in the 80s, like he listened to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all his classmates, they were listening to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, right? And if not, they were listening to disco. Like there weren't many genres. There were sort of these right, huge right. acts that like, and that's why I think you're able to point to the 70s and the 80s or the 80s, it started getting a little weird, but like the 70s and 60s and there were sort of these like divine sort of overarching cultural swirls you know, sort of blankets that united everyone. But now, like, you don't really have that. Like, sure, you have, like, Dua Lipa, but, like, I don't listen to Dua Lipa. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's just all these subgenres. And even in subgenres, they can be huge. Like, there could be some, like, crazy, weird, like, ska, electronic Japanese metal band that I've never heard of, but they could sell out the House of Blues and they're probably have a career out of it, right? So it's like, Mm -hmm. It's weird because I just feel like we're overpopulated, we're oversaturated in every form of the sense of that word that you can kind of carve out your place anywhere. And that's cool, but it also like sort of decentral, very decentralized form of culture where you're sort of creating tons of different pockets. And, you know, that's why I think maybe there's less of a, we got to, you know, it, this ties into the producer conversation of like, we got to tie, you know, we got to make the band sound like this, you know, that kind of energy. I think people are just, there's just this hyper individuality and whether it's good or bad and how it relates to culture is, is, is irrelevant. But I think that's definitely translating into sort of how people are writing music and bedroom pop and like how people are collaborating nowadays. It's just, it's really changing, you know? Bedroom pop. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's crazy, but yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, but to me, the algorithms are like leading somehow in a way that isn't scary. I mean, it is scary. It re It is scary, but they're finding humans they're they're pairing sounds with humans that are receptive to those sounds so they're making discover they're not they're not causing people to like certain things mm. they're not you know what i mean they're yeah. connecting the right people to the right sounds and it's that's brand new you know like the audiences and yeah. the new lanes of of sounds i wouldn't call them genres though it's like they're almost moods not genres yeah or yeah. like an like it's about mood or something. I don't know, but I feel that we're in a major yeah, shift where yeah. the algorithms are doing something that is going to shape things. But so far, it feels like I've discovered a lot because of what it suggests to me. So mm. I do trust that somehow. Yeah, yeah. And, and then it's funny moods. Know. Yeah, because mood. It's like 
that has to do with every with Spotify playlisting, right? Where it's like chill, energetic, and there's yeah, it's all the medium of how things are coming out that's sort of affecting like like the iPhone conversation about audio. I think it's the same conversation we're having about musical affinity and musical taste. Like our taste is being affected by the mediums that we are receiving this from, mm-hmm. you know. Correct. And I think it's making people, yeah, less genre centric, like less like I'm in this world. It's it's the playlist where like people are sort of tapping their toes in different places altogether. And and yeah, it's whether it's good or bad. I definitely think it's it's happening. And I think it's cool, honestly, um, that people are sort of branching out in that way. But like you said, we're sort of maybe losing that like cultural aspect of things feeling like a sort of time and place in the world because just people are sort of dipping their toes everywhere right like the led zeppelin era it's like yeah like 70s zeppelin like there's just such a such an idea there like a cultural marker there that i think will be hard to pinpoint like 30 years from now you know well if you're listening to led zeppelin when led zeppelin was evolving as a band that was because concerts were in stadiums and that's yeah. what you that's what it was made for. And yeah. then that could get on the radio or you could get that at a record barely and maybe hear it. But you gotta maybe catch it on the radio. But really the Led Zeppelin experience or A C D C experience is in a stadium. I mean yeah. now it's what what do I like when I cut the grass? What do I like when um you know, yeah. out sailing on a sailboat with my airpods i mean or when yeah. i'm sad after the, like what what that is the context in which I haven't you thought are gonna yeah, take the, the music mood. is infinite yeah. so there's so much more needed yeah you know? the mood thing especially with podcasts too i mean sometimes i'm just like not in the mood for music even i just like want to throw on a podcast and that's what i'll listen to all day like you also have that option as well just this this conversation is about media right i think it's just about yeah. how we interpret sort of creativity and media and how I think our sensitivity and our palate is just like broadened, like really a pretty, pretty wide for a lot of people. And I don't know. Yeah. You're always losing something when you do that. Right. But I think you're also gaining stuff. So it's always, it's always interesting to see where it's going and what you're losing versus what you're gaining. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a way that music is getting closer and closer to therapeutic purposes and individualized. And that is losing a shared context, but it's like mm. certain bands like, Oh, they're good in a 400 cap room. That's the context. Yeah. That's what it is. Some is like, well, I don't care if I ever see them. I just listen to these sounds when I'm cooking, you know? So those are two different uses, but they're both come from an artist's writing songs that they're trying to be authentic. You know what I mean? Like the process of creating it is still, there's only really one way to do it. It's like, yeah, somebody has to take that leap and think of what they're hearing and then see who it connects to and how, but the container, you know, what you're thinking about when you create influences it too. So we're going to have to build the context in which people share listening. Right now, it's all individualized or that's, yeah. the, that's the pendulum swing. But yeah. now that these new lanes are opening up in moods, we've got to figure out how to do it together somehow. We've got to build shared context. That's our job. The algorithms mm. probably aren't going to do that. Yeah, yeah. We got to figure out how we hear it together. Because I hear music differently when I'm around other people than when I'm by myself. Same music. Totally. That's another one of those factors, like speed when you're jogging. It's like, am I listening to this with four people? Oh, I don't feel the same about it anymore. Yeah, like yeah. I wanted to show it to them, but now I'm really insecure because they don't like it. Maybe I was stupid for liking it, <laughs> or it's like, <laughs> oh, they're bobbing their head. See, they get it too. It's like, yes. Yeah. Oh, or I hear them hearing things that I didn't hear, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, like, and that happens at concerts times a million. So yes, we don't have. That's the thing I feel is kind of missing. 
Yeah, it's that context thing, right? It's like that mm-hmm. album, that record, that song is going to mean something different if you're like, that's your the album that you traveled with in 2019 with your friends in Europe or something, or as opposed to you being at your home alone listening to it. Like, it's just a different sort of understanding of like how those songs interact. And yeah, that is that is a good point. I think post-pandemic, I think we're still figuring that out. And I don't know. I don't got the answer. They pay people big bucks for that. <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, Kevin, this is awesome conversation. Yeah. You know, I've enjoyed it tremendously. I'm really glad to be connected to your mind and see a little bit through your eyes of how you are interpreting this new landscape without some of the, you know, baggage that I, you know what I mean? I'm looking through you and looking at the context there and then hoping to, you know, go, who are the younger people that you think about and listen to? What, like, what makes you feel old? So, like I said, I had a, uh, a roommate named Mark, who he's 22 now, but when we were living together, he was 19, 20. And he's, he's that guy in my life, you know, that's like, he's no, he's got, he knows what's going on in New York and the hyper pop, like, there's all these artists that he's constantly sending me. And I'm just like, dude, like, I don't know. And we'll have, we'll have extensive, extensive conversations about it. And it goes to style and culture. And it's, it's weird. He's, he's kind of at that point for me. Um, so I always try to stay connected with, there with him. And sometimes we disagree and we'll like argue and like debate. But I find that important. I find that good because I always want to know what's going on. You know, because I think when you're in your late 20s, it's that first time you're hitting a point where there's like a cultural group before you. Because like, you know, when you're in your early 20s, you're not looking at a 12 year old and like, what are they listening to? You know, like they, there's no one tapped no. in there. Yeah. But then you hit a point where you're like, you look behind you and almost like surprised, like, oh shoot, like there's something here. There's something going on here that I don't understand that we've talked about. So he's, he's kind of my guy that will we'll chat and have some like interesting conversations. My new age threshold that I find interesting is 14. Like I think the best Ooh. time for music is like 16 to 22 or something like where you're okay. really most receptive and informative, but there's a, just a crazy amount of, of people and YouTubers and younger kids that are able to, be singers at like four, like Aaliyah was 14 when she had her first yeah. single. And I mean, that's crazy, but there's a lot of YouTubers and stuff or Billie Eilish. And they don't usually write songs yet at 14, but even at 14, I mean, these kids these days, younger and younger, able to just be hyper expressive and like yeah. they fool. And it's not that it fools me. It's like, I can connect to a 14 year old singing that my daughter's listening to and go, yeah. that's really good. How do they yeah. do that? You know? Yeah. So I must be as a listener, you're really starting to warm up by the time you're 8, 12. Like, I'm not really interested in what 12-year-olds are listening. They're just getting there. Yeah. But, it's, I mean, it's probably 14 and 15-year-olds that have yeah. probably pretty good insight into stuff that I'm still foggy about is my sense. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's a good point. Yeah. Got to hang out with some uh, 14-year-olds, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh yeah. Anyway, Valley Heart is awesome. I'm looking forward to what Thanks, you know man. things you guys do. I think this is a great home on Tooth and Nail, and I hope you get lots of opportunities. And I'm sure we'll you know do stuff in together, including conversations like this. Because I like yeah. I said, I don't know if other people uh, are that interested in the some of the things we're talking about or not, but I really don't care because I felt like I've learned a lot. Um, I'm yeah. getting some some good stuff here just on my end of this. So thank you very much. Thank you, man. This was a really really cool conversation. Thanks for having me. What stuff do you guys have? Do you have any tour dates? Or is you just want everybody to be on Spotify? What's the main thing you hope yeah. happens to Valley? You want people to what? Yeah, let's, 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 yeah, we want to connect. We want to just have people go on Spotify and our Instagram and uh, just connect there. And 
would love to hear about what the record's doing in your life and connect. And that way, we do have a, a local show on July 23rd um, at Arts at the Armory, which is a venue in Somerville, where we're going to be playing the new record. Um, and then in what state? we're planning some other local shows from there. Where's Somerville? It is right outside Boston. So it's in the it's in the Boston area. Outside of Boston, okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is we're, we're okay. from Salem, which is a little north, but yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Label. My name is Aaron, and a favorite song of mine is Falling from the Sky Day 7 by Norma Jean, because why can't you see the bottom? A favorite moment of mine was having Aaron Lunsford on my podcast to discuss my poor interpretation of Come Now Sleep and not discussing said topic. Sorry, Aaron, and thank you. Labeled is produced by Matt Carter and Knuckle Breaker Productions at Compound 3 Recordings. Editing and sound design by Seth Thompson. Editorial oversight by Jim Worthen and Adam Scatula. Brand and design direction by Joel Buchelman. Our production manager is Katie Franson. Executive producers Brandon Ebel and Matt Carter. Additional support from Marshall Fremont, Tyson Pauletti, and Anna Mirzaglocki. Peace!